Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Randy Cass. Randy Cass is CEO and founder of Nest Wealth. Nest Wealth is the second largest robo-advisor in Canada. But in addition to that, they are a platform provider of digital solutions for client onboarding and experience and asset management to dealerships, custodians, and other players in the industry. And with that, here's my interview with Randy Cass. Hello, Randy. How are you? Very well. Yourself? I'm doing great, thanks. Great. Thanks for coming in. End of day, uh, uh, Thursday before a long weekend, so... <laughs> pretty much appreciated. Shockingly, my calendar was open. Oh, look at that. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure getting you on the Friday would have been a harder <laughs> task. So uh, Randy Cass, founder of Nest Wealth. Tell us about Nest Wealth. Sure. So so if you looked at Nest Wealth today and you didn't have any regard for what we've done over the last four years, mm-hmm. you'd think of us as an engine that powers digital wealth. And what that means is we help firms, individuals, even employers move whatever process they've been using historically, whether it's an individual investing, a company managing a wealth management practice, or an employer offering a group RSP, and we allow them to do it all as they've wanted to do it in the past, as they've historically run their business, but digitally. And and we're the most successful company globally when it comes to the number of deployments that we've actually undertaken and successfully brought to market in the B2B space. Okay. We're definitely going to come back to that. So before we get deep in the weeds on Nest, tell me about your background. How did you come to this? And of course, for listeners who live in Canada and watch BNN, they're going to have some idea of the background. (laughs) Yeah, BNN. There's no such thing as an A-list star on Business TV, and uh, <laughs> but, but so getting to well, BNN, Kramer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, getting to BNN was interesting. So yeah. I, I started a. Not to, I'll go through this as quickly as I can. Yeah, well, Take me back about 20 years ago. I graduated as a lawyer, and then very quickly decided I don't want to be a lawyer. Like so many lawyers I've met. Oh uh, yeah, but but pulled the shoot very very quickly. Like yeah. the first weekend I was in articling. I you was, mean slavery? <laughs> no, I I had done a summer job, so I was well yeah. well acclimatized to what was expected of me. But I was in on the weekend. I was in a room. I was adding no value. I was going through a box of files for due diligence and and kind of highlighting typos and errors and stuff like that. But across the table from me was a 55-year-old partner in on a Sunday, feet up on the table, going through files, adding a ton more value than I was. But I just looked at him and I excused myself. I walked into my little cubicle of an office, called my girlfriend at the time, wife of almost 20 years now, and said, uh, yeah, I don't think I want to be a lawyer, which she took great because we had already been going out for six or seven years at that point. She thought now was the uh, the moment. <laughs> Went back. Uh, Just like my, my father said a rich lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Something. Um, Went back, did an MBA, did a uh, CFA, started trading currency derivatives at uh, TDSI. From there, uh, got recruited up to the Quant Group, the Quantitative Investment Group at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, worked under a, a phenomenal man named uh, Morgan McKaig. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there for about four and a half years managing quant portfolios, so portfolios that are driven by algorithms and math more than fundamentals. Uh, got a chance to run some external institutional money, so uh, left after about four or five years and, and started running money for some clients like J.C. Clark and Bluemont. And then eventually, 
almost accidentally in about 2005, were building a product internally that we were going to want to use ourselves. Some other friends in the industry found out about it. They said if they, well, they asked if they could use it, if we built it. And uh, sure enough, that became an actual fintech before fintech was a word. So (laughs) my first company, I started in 2005. We raised a lot of VC money in Canada and the States. We did Mm -hmm. a series A and a series B. By about 2011, we ended up selling that company to a UK company. So what was that company? What did it do? That company was called First Coverage. And it sat between uh, the institutional buy side and the sell side. And it allowed the sell side to communicate trade ideas and meeting opportunities and um, all sorts of other value adds. And it allowed the buy side, the portfolio managers, to gather all the information in the system with market to market and evaluate all the ideas as they came in and essentially give them the justification to figure out who they should be paying their commission dollars for. Mm. Of course, it didn't work out that way. The uh, large hedge funds in the States, the Renaissances, the SAC. No, they ended up paying us ridiculous amounts of money to use the chassis to start gathering data to make better trades. Mm. So the audit angle never played out, but the alpha Uh. one did. So oh, that's, that, what, that's what they'll pay for. <laughs> yeah, that was what they paid for. It was a good lesson. Lost control of the board, actually, when oh, we did I've the Series B. Oh, I've heard that story B. too many times. I didn't want to sell the company in 2011, but it wasn't my choice. Sold the company to a UK company, and that's when kind of figuring that I never wanted again to kind of strap on a suit or show up at the same place at the same time on a regular basis, uh, got offered the hosting job on BNN, which demanded that I strap on a suit sure every day. Same time, same time, same basis. <laughs> so originally, uh, I, originally I said, no, thank you. And then uh, my wife kind of smacked me upside the head and was like, yeah, because everybody gets the opportunity with no TV so training to, yeah. to have a show. That is true. <laughs> so I groveled, I groveled my way back into it. I did it for a couple of years. And then I was, um, I was really, I would have CEOs on, I would have CFOs of the big banks on, I would have the head of regulatory bodies, I would have the head of PMs and and fund companies. And I kept finding myself gravitating back to, it was a fuzzier, you mentioned Kramer, it was kind of a fuzzier, nicer version of Kramer. I wasn't, I wasn't. You didn't throw stuff. I didn't throw stuff. (laughs) And and you know what? Even then I made it very, very um, clear that I was never going to go on and talk about individual stocks that people should buy. Thank you. But I would talk about the problems with the industry and I would Thank call you yet again. Yeah. And I would call analysts to task for writing what I thought was garbage. And I would call fund companies to task for scaling enormously and not chopping the Canadian mm-hmm. fees on their funds. I would call regulators to task for not moving fast enough on some of these things. We're going to invest- talk a lot after this interview, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> in the investor's best interest. And finally, in about 2013, I realized that the industry wasn't going to get better by itself. And there was a real opportunity that existed to combine the things I knew, the markets, technology, building a company, and look at the millions of Canadians that were getting, by any stretch of the imagination, damaged uh, significantly by the lack of options in the marketplace. (laughs) And so I left to start uh, Nest Wealth as a direct-to-consumer robo-advisor. Clearly, it's not that today, but that that was the very initial concept of what opportunity existed in the marketplace. And in fairness, I mean, most of the robo-advisors have launched were direct-to-consumer concepts, right? And I think what you're seeing around the world is that that has changed. Right? Yes. The entire, you know, 90% of the market's not suddenly going to flow there. There is a need for, for advisors and relationships there. But the vast majority, with the exceptions of the wealth front of the world trying to destroy all advisors, <laughs> have, have pivoted to an advisor services or advisor infrastructure model. And you in Canada, I think, have been the first one to really kind of 
push that with, on multiple platforms. So we can talk about that in a minute. So one of the key things you said at the beginning was you said you've done more integrations than anywhere else in the world. I'd love to talk about what that means sure. and where you define that. So if you look at the B2B digital wealth environment right now, and so, and so to get a sense of where we were, we were direct business to consumer and then a little context and backstory. In 2015, we kind of, there were, there were still only five or six people at the company. And we sat down one day and we kind of looked around and we said, you know what? A couple things have happened. One, the venture capitalists were throwing ridiculous amounts of money into the direct to consumer options, the wealth yep. fronts, the betterments. And then we had power step up and write a significant check to Well Simple in Canada. Yep. And so we saw things accelerating on a timeline that we had thought might be five to 10 years out. But our belief was like, these guys aren't going away. If power's in for 30, they're in for 200 as they have been already. Yes. But on the flip side, it means that once there's its basic economics, once there's a substitutable similar product in the marketplace, you are going to have price competition and margin compression throughout the entire industry. Exactly. And we said, look, our belief is that this is a headwind that this entire industry is going to have to deal with. And the only way you deal with compressed margins is you get more efficient in your operations or you scale your operations to a level that hasn't been possible before. And in mm -hmm. our eyes, the answer to both of those solutions was a digital platform. So we tore apart everything we had built up to that point in time. And we spent about a year and a half building what we refer to as an engine that is Something that we white label and license to, so far only in Canada, but National Bank, Sprott, or sorry, SB9, Aligned, Aligned MD. Yep. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And they are then allowed to take the concept of what they do currently and how they have decided to build their business. Like here at, at Woodgate, you guys have a way of doing your business. And I'm a sure. digital platform shouldn't mean that all of a sudden you have to change everything you do. But it should mean that anything you do that doesn't add value is commoditized and taken care of vastly more efficiently. Absolutely. And you can take care of many other things that add value than you have in the past. And so that was our secular thesis. And it took about a year and a half to roll that product out. Nest Wealth Pro uh, launched towards the uh, end of 2016. And we hit the market dead on point. We really haven't been able to slow down or or even keep up with the demand for the product. When I say we've done more than anyone else, to the best of our knowledge, Sigfig has done a large B2B platform in the States, mm -hmm. two or three. They take 18 to 24 months typically to roll out their platforms. Competition in Canada in the B2B space, the digital wealth management, white label advisor. I think we see others that might have one deployed installation. Yeah. We're at seven or eight right now with more to come. And it's right? multi-custodial, multi-multi-custodial, multi-language, yeah. multi-currency, yeah. multi all things we can talk about when it comes to opportunities down the road. But we have really excelled at not just saying we can do something, but then executing on take for National Bank, for example, we took them from, all right, let's sign and move ahead to in the marketplace with NatGo, their digital platform, gathering assets in three and a half months. As someone who uses NBIN as a custodian, I'm a little bit annoyed that I can't use that yet. <laughs> can you, sorry, can you that. repeat that? As someone who uses uh, uses NBIN as a, as a custodian, I'm, I'm a little bit annoyed that I can't use that yet, but that's probably the dealership. We'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> or I'm going to talk to them later. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I will say this much. I mean, I am in the States. I mean, I can't think of, you know, with the number of integrations you have done, I can't think of anyone I know of that 
that has done that that supports that many in, different infrastructures, right? Yeah. Because they all, I mean, the wealth symbols of the world, they all know are custodian. Uh, Betterment's got the, you know, they use, I think it's Matrix only, and I'm not sure who Wealthfront uses, but they pretty much stick to their one thing, yep. right? You guys have basically said, let's take this sophistication, this automation, this lever, this ability to leverage other people's practices and give it to them all. Give the advisors the ability to add more value. Yep. If you're going direct to consumer, give the investors the ability to save more and gather more wealth. If you're going to the employers, give small businesses the ability to execute and roll out group mm-hmm. savings plans. But really, if, if you want to know the DNA of the company now, all on a single stack. We are a SaaS-based company. Mm-hmm. We are a licensed product. So everything we build is a modification, a configuration, an on-off toggle. But we control. You can do what you want on our platform, but yeah. we will control the technology and the process to get you there. So essentially, you're not yeah, like so many other tech vendors. You're not basically saying, here it is, go hire a consultant to implement. You're doing implementation at the same time. We will work with the consultants, but I think in many ways... A lot of the reasons we continue to see rapid growth on the B2B and the Nest Wealth Pro side right now, one is because I think the product speaks for itself. But on top of that, it's really interesting how many vast, large financial institutions in Canada still don't have a guiding light or a real degree of understanding about how they want to move into the digital world. And when they see us, they'll sit down with us and we will help them figure out things because now we've done it. A bunch of times. And, and you might think I'm exaggerating. No, but- you're not. I know you're not exaggerating. I mean, I've spoken to people involved in consulting at these levels. And then you see different banks come up with their little innovation labs to do the experimentation. But you don't see grand scale designs or plans or the direction for what that means. I mean, you see enhancements to their apps and a yeah. couple of little things, functionalities like um, RBC partnering with who's the accounting software uh, with Wave to basically yeah. provide the business owners. So you see the little inundation, but like, where's the global picture? Right. I don't see that. And you know what? And as I've talked to many founders, we've talked to these companies, you know, everybody's, you know, five years away from retirement. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> it's someone else's problem, right? The younger guys will figure it out. And it's, you can't keep doing that forever. I will say, and it kind of feeds into, again, our thesis continues to grow and we continue to learn really interesting things by being in the marketplace and seeing how people in the B2B side and, and on the direct side are, I mean, for, for all our talk about B2B, we're still the second largest direct consumer robo advisor in Canada, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we get good understandings of the marketplace going through the advisor channel as well as going direct to consumer. It's fascinating to me the amount of, we sat down with a large financial institution two and a bit years ago and we walked out of that meeting and honestly, they were so excited about what we showed them that they were ready to offer to buy the company. Right? Large financial institution. Of course, we weren't interested. This is the one who invested in you. I know it was. No, no, it's not. It's not. not. National Bank is is a a minority shareholder in us, but this is not them. And then we said, thank you, flattered, not interested. The conversation kind of rolled over. And a year later, we got a phone call from the same large financial institution. They said, we've been working on this for a year. Can you come in? The old, Uh, we can build this ourselves attitude? No, 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 not even building it. Just trying to figure it out. Can you come in? And, and we, we're ready to go. Yeah. Like we are ready to sign a contract okay. with you guys. We're ready to go. We're excited. We've decided that we're not going to build. We're going to, and we figure this out. So we go in and we sit down and we're around the table. And uh, I say, guys, I'm so excited that you've actually thought this out because we walk into a lot of these meetings and firms think they're ready to go or understand they're not ready to go at all. And it might be three, six months of, of kind of education before we yeah. get there. And I say, what regulatory regime have you decided to do this under? Right. IROC, MFDA, OSC, OSC, because it's a large financial institution, yeah. you can run them all they up. Yeah, verticals, yeah. 
And they look around the table. And honestly, it's the single most basic decision you have to make at the which start. Which channel, of, which yeah. line of business are we doing first? And and, and is it going to be discretionary, non-discretionary? Yep. And they look around the table and they say, oh, yeah, we, we hadn't really thought about that yet. And so... The clock is ticking on another year, and I imagine we'll hear from them again yeah. in a couple months. You know, they'll they'll do due diligence, and then they'll get to something else, and they'll come back and talk about it six months later. And it's just like it's not a priority. I mean, this is what I love about this space is that when you're focused, laser focused on one true value, you deliver best in class, right? Yes. And unfortunately, large institutions and why you're going to why why small people are going to disrupt them, or small companies are going to disrupt them, or add value if they get hired for them, is because a large institution can't do that. It's got too many plates in the air, spinning too many things, and they don't have the internal capacity for running that way. They're Look, not used to innovation. One of the things I'm going to say, and, and this is going to anger some people clearly. That's um, okay. That happens here a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do that a lot too. One of the people we have constant conversations with from a large institution in Canada actually told us that when they sit from the outside in and look at the innovation center, and, and that is not distinguishing anyone. Every bank hmm. and every insurance company in Canada has they one. They all have one. They find it's actually stifling their ability to move forward much more than it's helping because the innovation center now says we can do everything. So if you want to partner or license technology like Nest Wealth Pro, the innovation center will put up a good six to 12 months of fight, right? We can basically build that ourselves. For sure. And that's, that's, it's interesting. That's, that's a classic challenge with anyone who's got that kind of entrepreneurial engineering background, right? It's like, why am I going to pay for that? I can build it to which I've had this conversation with several of them. It's like, is that where your time should be spent with your limited resources? And inevitably the answer is, well, you know, we got 12 other things. It's interesting. And that's, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because you need, you need a powerful person to basically rein that in to say, well, too bad. You can get there in 12 months. These guys are there today. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because it reminds me of that, uh, Mark Zuckerberg line from the uh, social network movie where he said, if you could have built Facebook, you would have built Facebook, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing now. Yeah. Like you want to say, like, guys, really? if you could have done this, like there's been, it's no secret oh, what I a know. digital wealth platform looks like right no. now. And if you could have done it. You would have done it. Yeah, then yeah. nothing held you back, yeah. right? So one of the really interesting things that we've learned, and this is something that we're beginning to talk to our clients and large firms about, is I talked about unintended consequences. And a simple thing like onboarding someone onto a digital platform and then providing a button there to allow them to transfer in assets, mm-hmm. right? You think yep. natural functionality, of course it's going to be there. So the average client on Nest Wealth, this is on the direct to consumer side, 78% of them have done multiple transfer ins within the first six months. Mm-hmm. The average account balance of assets contributed to an account double within the first six months from the initial contribution. And we're not talking five to $10,000. The mm. average client on Nest Wealth is about 175000 okay. right? So we're talking pretty, a meaningful pretty good contribution. In, in the robo-advisor space, absolutely. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. absolutely tops. You take personal capital out of the picture from the States, which has kind of a hybrid well, model. it's also an aggregator. It's, it's, it's a, yeah, there's, there's a really different model. We have the largest assets per client that I know of outside of personal capital. But the really interesting thing is this has led to the notion that if you make a process, like think about it, what is the pain point when one of your clients calls you and says, I want to move assets over to you guys? Paper and time. Lots of paper, lots of time. Yep. You send them a form, you get a wet signature, they yep. get it back, goes to the custodian, gets yeah. rejected. Gets rejected because this tick box was missing. I got to go back and get an initial and a date on it. Yeah. Now, if I said to you, why don't we just put all the work on your client and you stay out of the picture, you would have said, Randy, I can't do that, right? Mm-hmm. But you give the client the ability to push a button, generate a pre-populated transfer form Mm -hmm. with all the data, do a digital signature, 
electronically submit it to the custodian book of records and then have the process route. It's our belief now that those who lag on digital to preserve the comfy margins that they currently have in their product lines are actually going to be the ones that suffer the most because once I aggregate, hundred percent. Once I aggregate oh, yeah. to a digital platform, why would I go anywhere? Why would you else, anywhere right? else? When the convenience factor is there, that literally can happen. I mean, again, we said it before. I can order something today. It's a little bit late in the day, but if I ordered something this morning on Amazon, it could have been my house by the time I got there. And meanwhile, it's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> it really is. Like you know, it's funny. I've heard it was a saying I heard the other day that Amazon's gotten us used to, to immediate, and Apple's gotten us used to beautiful, and anything less is a disappointment these days. Yeah. Right. So the fact that you know, and soon it's going to be delivered by drone within an hour. Assuming we get that, that regulation is fixed. But the point is, is that that when I'm looking looking in a world where I literally have to go into meetings with three, four inch thick piles of paper, right, and all these little tags for where they got to sign, and it's just it's not only just painful, it's borderline embarrassing at this point when you understand what is out there for sure. And the fact, and you're right, you know, the preservation of margin imperative is far too constrained. Like they're hoping the for dear life to hold on to this for as long as possible. But the reality is, is that unless you steer into that commodification commoditization of that tire entire interaction. Yep. You're not going to be able to preserve that margin because guys like you increase it and, and then you and, can cut and then you can under, undercut them. And then it's just, it just compounds upon itself. And the fight that I see going on at institutions and the forward thinking ones are figuring this out. And the ones that aren't thinking about this are kind of succumbing to the guys that have three, four, five years left and they're just hanging onto their books by yep. their fingernails is yep. they refuse to do anything about it. Those are the high margin guys. Those are the heavy producers. And it's the reason why I'm a hundred percent a believer that you will not be able to hide bad decisions going forward in the financial services world. There will be too much transparency. And if you're the advisor that puts someone into a high fee product, they will know it immediately three years yeah. from now, right? Well, this is what frustrates me with some of the regulatory, comp- you know, in Canada, we've just had an announcement about how they're not going to get rid of embedded compensation and mutual funds anytime soon. But, you know, Okay, that's great. I like um, how you added soon on the back. Soon, anytime. But yeah, so I mean, let's not get started. Like, get me started on that. But the point is, is I'm sitting there going like, okay, you think that this is going to preserve your margin. All that's going to happen is with a couple of button clicks now, people can suck their portfolio from wherever it is into a digital tool that tells them what is going on with their portfolio. For sure. And they're going to see that. I mean, we had a, another startup on here called Wealthscope. Yep. And they will actually grade the fee you're paying. And you know what? Letter grades work. So if someone sucks up a 2.5% mutual fund that's, uh, that, that they're paying that they're paying 2.5% on and they get an F grade, guess what the first part of the conversation with the, with the advisor is going to be? Yeah, I believe, look, the role of the advisor in this industry is changing dramatically. And I can't, I can't even tell you what it will be in five years, except it different than, than what it's historically been. It's not going to be product sales. Well, it's going to be implementation of strategy. Probably, I, yeah, I think there's that. a lot more holistic quarterbacking. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of stuff to it, but I think all of it will much more than ever before be based on this notion of trust mm-hmm. and that you have your clients back. And the second you lose that trust, the second that yeah, Wellscope yep. sucks it up and gives you an F, it's gone. It's gone. And it's never coming back. Well, and I've said before, the easy, and I've even written articles on this, the easiest way to destroy the relationship with the previous advisor is to tell them what the advisor got paid. Because <laughs> they have no idea. They have no idea. I mean, the number of times people come in here with million-dollar portfolios, and I look at it, and everything's sitting in deferred sales charge funds. For those of you not sitting, not in Canada, luckily, that if you sell one of those, it's five percent commission to the advisor, and uh, then a reduced compensation, a half percent for year for seven years. But the client stuck there for seven years and pays a fee if they cash out. So reality is, I'm like, oh, did you realize that this advisor made fifty thousand dollars just through buying these funds? And they just look at me. 
And they're just like, what? And I'm like, look, it's true. It's, here's what it is. I'm like, well, what would you charge? I'm like, well, let's just figure out what I'm going to do for you first. And right. so the conversation, like that relationship is dead. Like, ah. it's, already, it's already dead. You were actually, you dug the hole yourself. You climbed in and all it took was someone coming along and just push the dirt on top of it. And, and here's the difference. Right now it takes you coming along and a client coming to yeah. you to look at the stuff. In two years just with account and data aggregation oh, yeah. finally hitting Canada like it should be. Oh, I know. It will be a client board at home one night. Oh, I downloaded this app. Yeah. What the hell? What the hell, right? Yeah. And then try coming back. So those, and we'll talk about this in a second, I absolutely 100% believe that the advisor fills a valid and valuable role in the relationship for the client that wants to use that distribution channel, right? And mm-hmm. there are immense amounts of clients that want to use that distribution channel. Well, I mean, I would, I would, I would correct that. I'd say distribution channel versus, you know, you have a value proposition. If you're doing holistic planning, yep. comprehensive, you're paying investment insurance, tax estate, uh, financial planning, getting to their goals, behavioral coaching, all of that sort of stuff. That sort of thing, there is absolutely a market for it. For right? sure. And, then, and there's a lot, and you know what? The, there's the studies that show that basically the advisor alpha studies or the investment studies that show, you know what? That's worth several points per year. And that rationalizes and justifies the cost. But not a single one of them pointed to buy this mutual fund. Right. It, right. As, as and, a and value proposition. So by distribution channel, I meant exactly what you said. The human person sitting across exactly. the table, as opposed to the non-human person, right? Exactly. The individual sitting across the table from yeah. them being able to quarterback this process. Look, I don't want to pull my own teeth. I don't want to fix my own car. Exactly. You could, but it's not going to work out that way. Yeah, there are lots of things I don't want to do. So if we ran this conversation backwards for about 20, 30 minutes, we were talking about where the industry was and where it's going. And this industry from 2013 or 2011 to 2017 kind of went through these three gigantic shifts where in 2011, Mm -hmm. we rolled, or in 2013, we rolled out Nest Wealth Mm -hmm. and Everybody said that's ridiculous. There's no way on earth an individual will ever invest with a digital option, right? You know, and, I was saying it's happening. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I, no. I actually remember articles that came out that said, "Well, ne- we were ready to launch," and there was an article written in Money Sense that said it will never happen. There will never be a digital advisor in Canada, and we launched the next week, right? So I remember. Did saying, they not look elsewhere before <laughs> they wrote that article? They wrote the article and they said, "This is why it can happen in the states. This is why it can never happen in Canada," right? Wow. And I, I remember that. But I remember that everybody was like, that's going nowhere. Millions of dollars later. But then the sentiment shifted in like 1415 mm-hmm. and it was the advisor's done. Like this yep. entire industry is going automated. Yep. The advisor has no role. Yep. And there was paranoia and there was, there was hand wringing. And now if the pendulum kind of switched all the way at the start from digital means nothing to digital is everything, it's kind of sitting in the middle, which is what you talked about at the start. It's in this position where technology is absolutely necessary by the advisors to compete Mm -hmm. in a lower margin environment. Absolutely. If you don't have it, you are just counting down the clock until your business is out of business, right? Yeah. You're the dinosaur waiting for the meteor. Absolutely. But we've also learned that going out and gathering assets and clients for individual brands is not nearly as simple as people might've thought three or four years ago. It's costly. Yep. There's a low hanging fruit component to the marketplace. But after that, we are not seeing cost of customer acquisition come down across this industry. Hey, Wealthfront had a down round in the last uh, in the last go. Absolutely. Yep, yeah, and that's because they're not hitting their target projections, and now they're moving to proprietary product because they need to find the margin somewhere. And you know, it's interesting because I had a well known well known writer and newspaper writer in Canada, Rob Carrick. I, I sat down with him a while back. And he actually did a piece or was doing a piece on someone, people who had gone to robo-advisors and then gone back to conventional 
financial advisors. And it wasn't that they were unhappy with the robo-advisor, is that they had tried what was conventional. They realized they didn't see much value in it. They went to the robo, which was basically, you know, the not to say the bare minimum, but the bare minimum right thing to do on investing and realize they needed more hand-holding than that. For sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's exactly what a lot of people are discovering. So if you go and look at now at what Nest Wealth Pro and other American companies are doing with the digital platforms and why the enterprises are saying we need that, mm -hmm. it's because you can't run a wealth business like you used to be able to run a wealth business. Oh. You can't do the things that demand heavy resources and don't add value. Everything about digital from the user experience to the user interaction to the way that you onboard people is either being done in a cost-effective, cheap way or it's being done in a way that's going to crush your business, right? Absolutely. I mean, the old model was, I don't like doing this work. Let me hire someone for the lowest possible cost and have them do the work I don't like. Right? Yeah. That was it, right? So you bought a bunch of $30,000, $40,000 bodies to fill out paperwork. That did not enhance anyone's experience. It just ignored the problem. And now we're in a situation whereby, hey, that margin that you were paying that $30,000, $40,000, that's not providing a lot of value. It's not efficient. It's not dealing with the problem. People who deal with the problem are going to have that margin to then play with that you are not. So right. you're going to get crushed. And, and it's, a, it's as much of an issue for a massive financial institution as it is for a small boutique firm in Canada right now, right? And and that, I think it's a bigger one because the I mean they may have the resources to implement, but they also have the mar the, the deeper margins they have to protect to keep that dividend going, right? What an interesting Gordian knot they've got. To, and I, I tell mm -hmm. them, look, you, you got to cut this thing right now because the longer you go, the deeper the hole on that aggregation concept. Yeah. And meanwhile, what's happened is that the ones who have deployed their own robo-advisors have stuck to conventional pricing and they are not getting the uptick that others are because mm -hmm. the experience is different. Yeah, I, I remember and give credit where credit's due. BMO rolls out Smartfolio. Yep. It's actually not a bad digital experience there was some when interesting they roll things it out. That they, you know, they did some goal-based planning. I was, I was kind of impressed they were thinking that way. But you get to the end of it. Yeah. And they ask you to mail them a $10 check. <laughs> To open the digital account. And I, 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 that is we not, can't pay Yodely for anything. Oh, <laughs> that man. Is not, like, that is not the process oh. anymore. But it just showed these firms want to innovate, but they get behind compliance or they get behind legal or they get behind someone who isn't able to get on board with. No, no. Just because you've done it that way in the past doesn't mean it's actually the legal process, right? And so those that manage to get over that hurdle, look to firms like Nest Wealth and say, all right, look, we, we can't do this as quickly or as well as you guys do. We're a 40 person company. We have 20 engineers. We are- You're focused on one thing. We focus on one thing. Yeah. We gather more data about the B2B platform than anyone else. We mm. iterate, we improve, we know how to make it work. That's true. And no, we hadn't thought that. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. You have data on like, when does the client quit doing a questionnaire, right? Yeah. Redesigned to basically fix that problem over and over again against, across millions of implementations over time. And I can tell you a specific example of that was when we started, we took, as you mentioned, NBIN is our custodian, we use their form and then we turned it into a digital process yep. and we kind of followed step by step. This is years ago. This is the very first yeah. iteration. And we had SIN number, or sorry, SIN, social insurance number, right near the top because it's right near the top of the first page of one of their forms. No one wants to give you that information first. No. And, and so <laughs> we could see on the back end, yeah. everybody was bailing. You move SIN to the fifth screen. Yeah. After the purchase decision has been made. People are too invested. They, they yeah. don't bail anymore. And it's yeah. stuff like that, that firms now 
get to do using our platform and we get to do looking at our clients. But you have the institutionalized knowledge and, and you know, if the bank turns around and tries to do the exact same thing, they're going to make the every mistake you ever made along the way. 100%. No. And the other interesting thing is, so even if you don't believe the cost argument, even if you say that's ridiculous, we can figure out how to use paper more efficiently, more cheaply, we don't need digital, You'd be we the don't first need technology. to do that, but go right ahead. <laughs> go right ahead. I love to watch from over here. Even if you believe that, let me explain the situation because one of the things about digital wealth that a lot of people always say is, yeah, you guys are cute, but wait until the first market downturn happens, right? And then you guys are... So let me get this straight. The lower cost, easier to use, transparent solution is going to lose the business as opposed to the advisor who tells them what to buy, providing a false sense of security, who's paid more. How does that make sense? Yeah, it's an inch. Look, I don't wish anyone to lose money, but down downdrafts and drawdowns are part of this market. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, they will come. Absolutely. And, and let me... Let me put two possible scenarios in front of you. And one other thing I'll I'll add to the previous statement, and you guys implement actual balanced portfolios, actual actual modern portfolio theory portfolios. How few advisors in the marketplace take any attention to research that's over 60 years old now? Staggering. And and while there are flaws in it, there's nothing that's come out that's better. Well, again, it's like democracy. As Winston Churchill said, it's the worst form of government except for every other one. Might not be the best example right now. (laughs) Well, Um, it depends on what country we're talking about. But continue. (laughs) Um, So so let's go through these two scenarios. Let's say there is a market drawdown, right? And you are an advisor sitting with a book of a couple hundred clients, right? You have two choices, right? One choice is you're going to do things without a digital platform. And what you're going to do is you're going to reach out probably from the most valuable to the least valuable client in that order over the phone and try and tell them something that calms them down, right? The average advisor's got over 300 households, so that's going to take a long time. Not only will it take a long time, it's likely that 80 or 90% of them might not have been paying attention to the issue anyway. And now your call not to worry is something that's going to cause them to worry. Absolutely. Take the digital guy. The guy who can say, I'm really interested in just the people who are logging in more often, Mm -hmm. who are checking their balances, whose behavior has changed. I want to craft a message that just goes to call them the anxious investors right now. I want to leave the other 90% of my practice alone. I want to see who those people are by their behavior, and then I want to communicate with them. And those that are just doing what they're supposed to do, living their lives and being on a 20-year horizon... God bless them. I'm not going to yep. reach out to them right now. Well, Which, those are the ones that you've effectively trained. So why right? alarm them? So yeah. who's going to be in a better position to actually service their client? Those using a digital tool or those doing things the old-fashioned way? And when you start recognizing, when the enterprises and the advisors and the participants in the industry look at this and say, I get it. I get how technology lets me do things better, lets me do less of the things that I hate to do that don't add value, lets me free up my time so that the value I can provide in the future, whatever this industry evolves to, can be provided. And if you don't do that with technology, then you can't beat the guy that does. Absolutely. And the true irony is they've always complained about the amount of paperwork, but somehow they don't want to adopt the alternative. Yeah. Right. So is the solution that you think that should be done on two pages as opposed to done digitally? That reality is never going to come to fruition, whereas the current or the reality of digital is coming to fruition. Yeah. And, and I mean, I will say this from the regulatory bodies out, as much of a hard knock they might get sometimes by industry participants, they have actually been very supportive of the transition to digital, at least from our point of view. Oh, right? I've had that conversation with several people. They, they've been open to change. And I think part of it is realizing that when you look at what you guys represent to them. You represent greater compliance. 
You represent yes. the forms getting actually done properly. You represent people not going back and failing to, or, or people forging signatures at the end of the day. For sure. And we represent being able to guarantee that there is an audible process to update a KYC every year. Yep. We that's represent true. archiving every KYC that's ever been answered. We yep. represent geolocation and IP security on document signatures. Like I often say, and if you're from the OSC, turn this recording off right now. I don't think anyone's listening yet because they would have complained to me about previous statements, but continue on. I often say that if you left it up to a regulatory body and said, go create an investment solution that would serve the most possible Canadians, they would create something very similar to what the generation of robo-advisors were in Canada. Conflict-free, low-cost, digital, yep. auditable, and easy for as many people as possible to use, yeah. right? Well, I mean, let's just play the game of clean slate. You have zero industry to start with. If you were going to build one from scratch, how would you build it? You wouldn't build it on a pile of paper. No. Not, so. Yeah. And not only that, you would build it to give the maximum amount of sophistication and customization possible Agreed. to as many people as possible, as opposed to those that might just happen to have a certain asset level or a certain yeah, geographic exactly. region, right? And don't get me wrong, there is a different set of problems that those with half a million, a million, two million dollars have. Absolutely. And that, that requires a different level of, and this is me keeping my job. Uh, <laughs> that requires a different level of service in handholding and understanding of tax law and everything uh, that else. That escalated right? quickly. That escalated quickly. <laughs> I'm defensive. No, I'm kidding. And you know what the reality is, and people don't like to talk about it, but the reality is, is that investing is commoditized. And anyone who doesn't believe that, look at the fact that you have ETFs literally in the U.S. that pay that cost zero. Yes. Literally cost zero. And prices are being are being compressed everywhere around the world. And you know what? The average person can't tell the difference between a balanced portfolio at Fidelity and a balanced ETF portfolio at, at Vanguard, but they can sure as hell tell the difference between the fee structure that they're looking at. Right. And look, just because the individual investor for the last 40 or 50 years has thought that the value that has been added by this industry has been added by people picking portfolios and stocks for them. Mm -hmm doesn't mean that there isn't an incredible amount of value for the advisors in the industry to add going forward. Just because there is, but they can't base that value proposition on something that's never been actually academically proven ever. It's just the brokers, the average broker's ability to actually pick a winner in, yeah. a, in the long term. 100%. So we've been talking about a lot of stuff. I want to wrap up a couple of things on the lines of business, make sure we cover that before we, we sign off. But you have three lines of business right now, correct? Yes. So you have Nest Wealth Pro. So that is the implementation we've been talking about the entire time and how you help advisors leverage, correct? So that's kind of broken out into two parts. Nest Wealth okay. Pro is the enterprise sale. So all Got the it. large firms that I talked about, mm -hmm. they have licensed Nest Wealth Pro. Mm -hmm. And if you logged in, it would look different on everyone. It would follow different practices. It would use different products. It would have mm -hmm. different KYCs. It is a completely modular, configurable platform for large financial institutions and smaller ones as well. So you have the Nest Wealth Plus for advisors. Plus is something where those people that don't want to handle the investing side of things mm -hmm. can actually refer their clients and mm -hmm. refer their business over yep. to Nest Wealth. With a letter of direction signed by the client, they can have access and visibility so that if they're doing fee-only financial planning yep. or other things, they can now use this as a data point to build into the holistic model, but they don't have to worry about the actual stock management yeah. ETF selection portfolio you creation. Have, I mean, the U.S. uses TAMPS in that regard, so same similar basic product. You're doing a turnkey solution for them. It's hand, being handled start to finish. 100%. And then you have a employer, Nest Wealth for Work. Yeah, so Nest Wealth at Work launched just a few months ago. It's in partnership with firms like Vanguard and Morneau Chappelle. Mm -hmm. We recognize, and, and to be honest, it's, it's probably the 
thing we've done over the last 12 months that has, has given me more joy and excitement than anything else. We recognized that there were 13 million Canadians that are working at small and medium-sized businesses or across Canada that don't have any group saving plan at all. And the reason when we did a lot of research and started talking to business owners and employees and otherwise was that either the options that were in the marketplace had been too expensive had been too complicated to manage or the significant players in the marketplace had decided that small and medium-sized businesses weren't really economical accounts for them and were focused on the large to huge businesses, right? So our belief was, look, you can talk about a crisis of savings as much as you want. You can talk about the fee situation as much as you want, but there's really very little that's more efficient for someone to save for their future than having some money come directly off of their paycheck in a tax-efficient manner and go into their account. 100%. If it doesn't hit their bank account, then they don't they don't have to worry about spending it or not spending it. Right. And yeah. so we came up with this mission that's about as clear as anything we've ever done, that any employee working for any employer across Canada should be able to save for their future and any employer managing any business in Canada should be able to offer a simple, free group RSP solution to their employees. And the thing has been gangbusters. We already have hundreds and hundreds of businesses on it. Fantastic. And I think it's a monstrous opportunity for us. Excellent. One last thing about your company I want to talk about before we uh, we wrap up is your fee structure on investing. Now, that is what I've, I would term unique in the space. I don't <laughs> think I've seen anyone take that approach yet. Right. So look, we believe for us at least, there are no sacred cows. If you if you look back to what you said and you and you suggest how are we really going to um rebuild this industry with mm-hmm. from a clean slate? Look, technology allows our consumer business to scale remarkably well. And the truth is when you're using Nobel Prize winning modern portfolio theory to create a portfolio for each individual, mm-hmm. even if they're customized, it's not taking us any more work to do 500,000 than 200,000 or 2 million, right? It's taking the advisor much more work either, but continue on. (laughs) Um, So we very early on said, it just doesn't make sense to charge someone at 2 million 10 times as much as someone at 200,000. And so our direct-to-consumer practice is, you're right, it's the only one that charges a flat fixed fee regardless of how much someone puts in their account. And it starts at $20 a month and then it caps out at $80 a month. So $960, and that's as many accounts under the individual as you want. And for that, we have clients that we manage millions and millions and millions of dollars for that would be spending dollars $15,000, $20,000, $30,000 a year. They're spending $960 with us. And when you think about that over 10 years, over 20 years, It's half a million to a million dollars of excess wealth they're going to retire with. Well, it's interesting. I've been I've been having this conversation with many people because I've you know the last shoe to drop on pricing is going to be advisor comp. Everything else has been compressed, and that's what's going to happen. And you're starting to see that trend here in Canada with you know stories I can tell about that major institutions now trying to go to employment models as opposed to paid commission models. Yep. And you know it's a matter of time before that happens. And I've even talked to institutional managers who are getting you know who run tens of millions of dollars for pensions and they get another check for a million bucks and the fee, and the, the total price tag goes up and the pensions are starting to fight back saying like wait a second like what's changed what have you fundamentally done differently you bought more of the exact same thing you had before for sure so they're starting to see the pushback too and the fact that you know in a lot of ways i say like you're not getting addicted to that price to that higher margin that higher yield you've set yourself at a point that makes sense and you can deliver value and you're not good at when everybody else is forced to compress you're already there and with my own practice we've actually capped our fees as well right? did you really we did we did we Ooh. capped it's not a small level and we'll talk about that offline <laughs> But that being said, it's also because we realize at a certain threshold, it's like, I can't, like, we were pricing on like $20 million accounts. And it's just like, 
this makes no sense. <laughs> like, I know we want to make more, but like, I, I'm not providing three times the value of, of the person at the, you know, the level one third. So, so we recognize that and we've capped that. And I think that's something I encourage a lot of advisors to do, but no one seems to be listening. But what are you going to do? Anyway, Randy, this has been great. One last question I ask everybody before we wrap up. Oh, it's this is where this whole thing falls yeah, apart, right? Thing. No, no, this is just your opportunity to, to shine. So basically, what excites you most about what you're working on this industry or just the trends in general? Look, when I started 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes ago now, uh, <laughs> talking about the winding path I took to end up here, I think it's safe to say that I've held almost every position in the financial services, wealth management industry. Including media, which is very rare. But yeah, including, <laughs> including media. I've done fintechs. I've created companies. I've created products. And I will tell you that there is a bounce in my step when I get out of bed now that I've never experienced in my career Fantastic. before. Now, part of it is the people I work with and the team we've built and how amazing and incredible and devoted and passionate they all are and how smart they all are. But the other part of it is this. True, Nest Wealth is a financial services company, but, but if you take it down a level, we are a product company. But by being a product company, we are driving things like transparency and better outcomes and better solutions into the marketplace at a time when I think all the status quo solutions that exist are going to get overturned. Absolutely. And when you realize that we are part of, just in Canada alone, part of a solution that means that there has never, ever been a better time to be an investor in Canada, which is the reason we all got into this industry. Mm -hmm. How do we create the best outcomes for investors, right? Mm -hmm. And we are there helping that each and every day, whether it's whether it's allowing advisors to add more value, whether it's allowing consumers that have never had access to sophisticated portfolio construction have it now, whether it's employers being able to give benefits that their employees deserve. Everything just kind of bundles up into this common theme that, man, it is a, it's an incredible time to be an investor in Canada. And, and we're just happy that we're a part of it. Fantastic. Well... Thank you for the positive change that you're helping enact because, frankly, it was sorely needed in this country and elsewhere, too, but specifically here. <laughs> so thanks again for coming in, Randy. My pleasure. So I was meeting with Randy Cass. As you can see, we share a lot of the same feelings and thoughts on how the industry needs to change, and he's working to make it happen. And I thank him for that. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Jason Pereira, and this is FinTech Impact. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.